And the first question. First question. Is um, regarding the Old Testament. Could you show how it was God's withdrawal of protection instead of Him acting when it comes to the flood? Excellent. I knew we'd get a few on that. Um, the question is arising out of this thing I shared a couple of weeks ago on a uh, cross-centered way of reading, and I'm going to take a little more time on this question than the, all the others because uh, it is a little bit more meaty, and we got to set it up a little bit. So I talked about uh, a, a cross-centered way of reading the Old Testament. Um, the Bible's not a flat book. It's, it's, a, it's a story, and how the thing ends in the last chapter with the coming of Jesus changes everything that went before it. So it's like the movie, uh, a movie like The Sixth Sense or The Book of Eli, where what happens at the very end reframes everything. When Jesus shows up, everything gets reframed. Even something like the law, which, which looks so positive in the Old Testament, we find in Paul that that was used, at least one of its uses, was as a negative object lesson to point us to Christ, to show us that that's not the way to, re- to relate to God. And so I'm, I'm really encouraging us to uh, re-ask ask the question, how does the meaning of things change as we read the Bible through the lens of the cross? On the cross, we find the definitive revelation of God. This is God's true character. This is what God is like. And now that we know what God really is like, as we look back on these texts, uh, that were written by folks who didn't have the full revelation, how can we interpret them differently? I'm particularly concerned uh, to explain the portraits of God acting violently in the Old Testament uh, because that seems to so conflict with the revelation of the God who gives his life for enemies rather than slaughters them. And this is very much in the opinion realm. This isn't doctrine, certainly not dogma, and it's a million miles away from being Christ. Uh, this is one way of looking at things and and I offer it, and I'm writing a book on it now. Uh, if it helps, it helps. If it doesn't, find something better and uh, email it to me. So as I uh, look at the, these, these narratives, I've suggested several weeks ago that uh, sometimes what biblical authors mean, when they say God did something in acting violently, as we look at it through the lens of the cross, what we can see is that God merely allowed it. One of the things we find on the cross is that God judges sin by withdrawing. That's what happened with Christ. And, 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 and God takes on the appearance of one who is guilty, right? Jesus looks like a guilty criminal. So God demonstrates his love by condescending down to our level to take on our sin, by experiencing the judgment of sin with his, his God's withdrawal, um, and by identifying with us in that way. And so I, I submit that as we look back on this, we can uh, see God withdrawing to allow sin to run its, uh, its self-destructive consequences. Now, sometimes you can, in fact, what I'm showing in the book is that, uh, that very frequently you can find things in the text that confirm that perspective. Sometimes not, but sometimes, sometimes you can. Um, and uh, so whether you can find things in the text itself that suggest that uh, this was uh, simply God allowing evil to run its course, whether you can find that or not, I have reasons just from the fact that I know who God really is in the cross to read it that way. But then, as I said, there's often indications in the text uh, that, uh, that, that confirm that. Uh, w- one of the things that we find, it, it's, at least it's a possibility, uh, and I didn't mention this a couple weeks ago, but it's, a, um, a, it's called the, the metonymy of the subject, and it's a grammatical rule in, 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 in Hebrew. You can find this in, in Billinger's uh, a book on, on uh, uh, figures of speech in the Old Testament. But often they uh, portray someone... Uh, as doing something when, in fact, they're only allowing it or they're only uh, speaking about it. Uh, for example, the Lord says in Jeremiah 1.10 that I'm setting you up 
as the prophet to tear down the nations and, and uproot the evil and things of that sort. But in fact, Jeremiah wasn't the one doing that. He was just uh, prophesying about it. So that would be one of the ways that we could confirm that God is in fact just withdrawing, even though the text portrays him as doing it. In the specific case of the flood narrative, I have a whole chapter on this because it's a, it's a really good example of it. You have at the start the Lord saying to Noah, I'm going to flood the earth. But what's interesting is that from then on, the only activity that's ascribed to God is redemptive. When he, when he sends the wind that drives back the water. The, the passage is spoken, spoken of in just sort of a passive voice. And the waters came forth. And the, 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 the deep opened up. And the floodgates were open and, and things of that sort. As though they were doing that on their own. And what I found is that there's a number of Old Testament scholars who argue that what we have in the flood narrative is really a reversal of creation. And you can really show this in a clear way if you have the time to do it, which I don't have now. But, but it's, it's the undoing of creation. And you find in a number of the creation accounts in the uh, Old Testament, because there's more than one, but you can even see indications of this in Genesis 1, which is the primary creation narrative. But God, God establishes order by pushing back the forces of chaos. That's where you find God rebuking the water and things of that sort. These are, these are ancient ways that uh, ancient people thought about forces of evil. We, we call them Satan and the principalities and powers. So God establishes creation by pu- uh, pushing back the, the chaos. And this is some of what's hinted at in, in Genesis 1 when it says that the Spirit of God covered the face of the deep. And the word for deep there is, is the Hebrew, tehom, uh, which has a connotation of something sinister. At least some scholars argue that. And so what happens in, 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 in the Genesis narrative is God, who was holding the waters at bay, now withdraws, and the waters, which are symbols of forces of evil, come and wreak havoc upon the earth. Um, and, and, and you can see that the very order of things in the Genesis account, in the, in the uh, flood account, is the reverse of what you find in the Genesis creation account. So it's the undoing of creation. And so whereas God upheld the earth and fought off the forces of evil, uh, now he withdraws. The portrait of Satan we're given, this is my last word I'll, I'll say on this, uh, in the New Testament is that he's the thief that comes to kill, steal, and destroy, right? And, and he, is, he is pervasive. He and his kingdom are pervasive. Um, the, you know, the, all the kingdoms of the world are owned by him and, and all death is ultimately due to him. And he's, this, this all, this pre, he's present everywhere, at least his destructive influence is present everywhere. So that if God for a moment stops keeping him at bay, well then death happens. He's the angel of death. And um, in all the accounts where I see violence, even though the Old Testament authors, given their penultimate understanding of who God was, they maybe thought God was capable of this. Uh, as I read these accounts, uh, I'm led to believe that God, with a grieving heart, because I think God always grieves when he has to allow destruction to run its course, but he withdraws and the flood ensues and destruction takes place. Anything you want to add or correct? Not at all. There you go. I already took up enough time. Amen. (laughs) Well, here's a related question. Consider time when answering. The explanation of the Old Testament um, being a shadow of the New Testament made sense. But if God had all of that planned out ahead of time, how does that fit with the idea of openness? Also, why not just read the New Testament then if it's a way more accurate picture of God? Mm -hmm. Well, Paul, you want to taste that? This is your theory, dude. Uh, Okay, okay. (laughs) 
He's gonna, then you have a lot of, lot, lot of work to do to, to balance the time here. All right. So I'll just let you have the rest of the night. Um, so the first part was, how does that fit with openness? Um, I, I guess I'm not seeing the problem here. It's not clear. Well, we could debate this, but how much of uh, how it went down in the Old Testament was actually something that God planned. Um, I see a lot of it as being a response to what is, not something God planned. Um, so, for example, you know, uh, and Paul's the one who, who uh, opened my eyes to this. Uh, it seems like God originally just wanted to have a covenant with the, the children of Israel based on the Ten Commandments. Uh, so Moses grows up to get the Ten Commandments. And by the way, God didn't want that. That was something that the children of Israel, when God wanted to meet them all, they all went, oh, no, we can't do this. Because you know, they had this probably Egyptian, ferocious beast sort of image of God. So they're terrified. So they want Moses to be the mediator. And Yahweh says, okay, fine, I'll just deal with Moses. See, but even that was an acquiescence. Then Moses goes up there to get the Ten Commandments. He comes down and they're, they're worshiping this golden calf. He breaks the Ten Commandments. And that's when God, you know, basically, and that was supposed to be sort of the, 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 the ceremony, you know, of, of establishing this covenant. Now that I got you out of Egypt, you're going to be my children, blah, blah, blah. And then comes the, the whole Levitical law and the 613 laws. It's like, fine, you want to play hardball? Well, here's what it looks like. So even that was an acquiescence. I see much of what happens in the Old Testament as not something God planned, it's something that when it happens, God says, okay, here's how we're going to have to deal with that. You didn't want a king, but they didn't want a king, so they got a king. And uh, uh, so uh, I, I don't see any comp- incompatibility uh, with that in openness at all. Uh, what was the second part of the question? The second part is, why don't we just read the New Testament since it's a more accurate way of seeing God? Okay, good, good. God. That'll respond. Okay, here we go. Paul will take that one. Uh, I'll just say that with, with regard to these questions around Greg's theory about the Old Testament, I, I will let Greg answer most of those, because this is really some new stuff he's been working on the last year or two. Four. Four. Uh, you're, but your ideas are really more recent yeah, yeah, yeah. than the ones been, you're dealing with now. And although I've read most of what he's done, I've been doing helping him some research on this end of things, um, I'm still kind of personally exploring what I think about this. And I'll be honest, the more I read about what he's doing, the more impressed I am with, with the way it handles a lot of the data, both of the Old Testament, as well as making sense out of how a New Testament Christ-centered perspective can uh, embrace the Old Testament while also admitting the progressive revelation. Uh, so back to the question of, of, so if the New Testament's where we really get the clear picture of God in Christ, why even bother with the Old Testament? I think we can come up with a number of responses to that question, one starting with Jesus himself. Since Jesus is the center of all this, Jesus himself says that Scripture, and whenever Jesus says Scripture since the New Testament hadn't been written yet, he's referring to the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus himself is constantly referring us back to that as the Word of God. So even though Jesus becomes the clearer, more full revelation of God, That doesn't mean there isn't revelation of God in the Old Testament. There's lots of it. It's just that now that we have Jesus and the New Testament, we with that lens can look back on the Old Testament and sort of see where Israel was still kind of allowing its its cultural ideas of God to be influencing it, as opposed to when God is sort of breaking through Israelite culture with new revelation about who he is. Um, it's not like the Old Testament is all, you know, 
not clear revelation. The New Testament is all perfectly clear. God is already in the Old Testament showing the heart of love. He's already showing the beauty of covenant. He's already, for example, in uh, Exodus 32, 6 and 7, revealing himself to be a God who is compassionate, gracious, full of loving kindness, abounding in forgiveness of iniquity, sin, and transgression. That sounds like a New Testament text, but that's the heart of the Old Testament. So they, they come as a package. It's just that what Greg is showing is that some dimensions of what comes through in the Old Testament aren't the clarity of God that we see in Jesus Christ. And this theory, I think, does help to, to help us discern those, those moments. Well, the way I, I like to say it is that God was always revealing as much of his true, beautiful, Christ-like nature self as possible, but accommodating as much ugliness as was necessary. When you read the Old Testament, you can see both going on. Uh, but the criteria to decide which is which should always be uh, Jesus Christ revealed on the cross. Uh, the other thing is that we, you, you can't even understand who Jesus is, really, without the Old Testament. Uh, you know, it, it, it's the Jewishness of Jesus that, that's his human identity. Yes. And the way he fulfills all the things that the Old Testament is pointing to. And, and so it, 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 the Old Testament fills out our whole understanding of Christ. He, he culminates the whole thing. The only other thing I'll say is, is this. Uh, the, the biggest pushback on my, uh, this reading of uh, the Old Testament through the lens of Christ is that uh, it means that the, the text itself in the Old Testament doesn't necessarily have the final word. That I'm assuming that as we read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, we can see things that they themselves couldn't see. And that goes against uh, what a lot of people have been taught, saying, no, you have to take the whole Bible at face value. And that's the, 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 really the biggest pushback. I guess what I'd say is, is uh, there's a number of things I could say about that, but I'll start with, I'll just for tonight say this. Look at how the, old, the New Testament authors read the Old Testament. How closely did they stick to the text, to the original meaning? And what you'll find is, across the board, uh, they read it through the lens of Christ. They found meanings there that none of the original authors could have possibly understood. Um, and... and uh, so I, I think there's good precedent in the Bible itself for rereading, reinterpreting uh, the Old Testament in the light of Christ. Great. Your next question is, is there a Christian view of being angry that is not sinful? I hate when a Christian gets asked. <laughs> oh, I, I. I never get angry, Paul, so you have to deal with oh, this Oh, yes, yes. The question is, a do Christian you do it in view a Christian of angry, way? Of being angry that is that's not sinful. That's not sinful. Yeah, very good question. Um, I think, I was going to say in our culture, but maybe probably in every human culture, um, the, the expression of anger has for human beings often been sort of this, 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 this tightrope walk into, oh, man, that's so like sin. But, you know, it's not that anger is, is sin. It's, it's how we express anger, I think, and also what the motive for, for our anger is. I think those are usually the two things that can help us see that there is a difference between anger and sin. But if we're not clear on those two points, anger can quickly lead to sin. Uh, for example, Jesus clearly gets angry at, at certain times, and Jesus uh, was not, never sinned. And so obviously we have one example of a human being who, who could get angry and not sin. So what was it about Jesus that enabled that possibility? Again, I think it goes back to two things. His motives what got him angry, and then what he did with that anger. What was it that got Jesus angry? What's fascinating to me is that never once that I have ever seen in the Gospels does Jesus ever get angry 
when someone offends him personally. I think that's fascinating. If someone offends his father, God, he'll get angry. If someone hurts or offends one of his fellow human beings, particularly the least of these, the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, he gets angry. But never once when something comes at him does he get angry. So he's got this very other-oriented, love-centered view of life. So he'll, he'll take on people's anger at him without getting angry. But when it's about someone else, he comes to their defense. Secondly, what does he do with that anger? He never reacts in ways that are harmful to the person that made him angry, but rather what he does is he speaks truth and, and demonstrates truth into the situation that can help someone see what uh, the, the thing that's caused Jesus that anger, why it's harmful, why, why it's something that's harming to, to God or to others. And so again, I think motive and how we deal with it are, are really important in, in this question. Anger is, I think, just an uh, inbuilt God thing. When something we value gets violated, it causes anger. It, it, it wasn't given the worth it should have been given. Um, but as Paul said, sometimes what we value uh, is, is an idol. And, um, and so our anger is disproportionate to the value of the thing that got violated. Uh, and that's the sin. The fact that you're angry about it isn't itself sin. It's, uh, it's the thing that you're angry about, the value attached to it. And so the way to correct that is simply to get all your life from Christ and, and get free from idols. And the other thing is that Paul, in, in Ephesians 4, verses 25 and 26, he says, Be angry, but don't sin. Mm-hmm. And then he says, Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. He uses this word. The word anger is orge. This means to get hot. Uh, the word that he uses when he says, don't let the sun go down on your, he uses para-orge. Para has the connotation of something down under. And so what he's saying there is that, that when, you're ang- when you're angry, deal with it. Don't go to bed with it. Don't sleep on it because now it becomes submerged and it becomes bitterness. It starts to pollute your whole being. And then Paul adds in verse 26, don't give the devil a foothold. Because what we do is, I mean, he's the prince of darkness. He needs darkness to operate. So when we are angry, but we don't deal with it, we don't, don't dress it, we put on our nice Christian smiles and say praise the Lord and, and, and go about our merry ways, well, now it gets on the inside of our system. It becomes a pollutant and it becomes a weapon that the enemy can begin to use to erode aspects of your life. Be angry about the right things and deal with it quickly. That's Christian. Okay, your next question. Why do men have a problem with women in authority? It's kind of generalized. <laughs> it's the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's up with those men? <laughs> what gives? Um, why do some men? Why do <laughs> That's not what the question said. Qualifications are important. <laughs> when given that the question is asked in the context of a church, I think we can even, even more specify that question. Why, why has the Christian church um, had a problem with women in authority? This isn't just a sort of a cultural societal problem. The church has had uh, a problem with this through history. Uh, and let's, let's be honest. A lot of the reason that Christians have defended, and usually male Christians have defended, uh, ha- not giving women places of authority, whether in the home or whether in, in church itself, is they'll appeal to verses in Scripture. And so from their perspective, well, the Bible says that, that, that women shouldn't have places of authority. And you ask them, well, where does it say that? Usually it turned to a couple of passages like 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, or 1 Corinthians 11. Um, so to, to deal with one of them concretely, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and following, that he, Paul, doesn't allow women in his churches, 
which at that point was churches throughout the Mediterranean world that Paul was, was, was building, to speak, as she says, to teach or to hold authority over men. And so a lot of folks through church history have said, look, Paul doesn't let women teach or hold authority. Why, why should anyone else? This is the Christian way to, to do it. Um, you might notice that around here at Wooden Hills, we have, for example, on our pastoral staff or in people who come and speak and teach here on, on the pulpit on, on uh, weekend events, we have women involved in both of those settings. Uh, we don't believe that the point of Paul's teaching in 1 Tim- Timothy 2 was a universal for all times and all places teachings about women. And it's not just because we don't like that idea. It's because we see Paul and other biblical authors at other times allowing, in fact, encouraging women into positions of leadership and teaching. For example, in Romans uh, 16, Paul himself is, is running through a list of people he knows in house churches in the Mediterranean world, and he's actually affirming them, a number of which are female, in leadership positions. In fact, one of them uh, he calls an apostle, Junius, which is a female name, and calls her an apostle, which is a pretty leadership position in the early church. So what's Paul doing? Is he schizophrenic? Or, you know, what's up? Well, as Greg and I have looked into this, and we're not alone on this, there's good reason that Paul would have, for practical reasons, asked women not to lead or teach in his first generation new converts from pagan religions into the church, uh, first generation of Christians. In that culture, most females, for example, could not read. They were not given uh, an educational context to read. Uh, they were also coming out, a lot of them, out of pagan contexts uh, where women particularly have been used in leadership positions in, for example, Diana's temple in Ephesus. And so for a variety of reasons, it might have been a pragmatic move on Paul's part not to let these women of this generation who didn't know how to read, weren't familiar with the, with the Hebrew scriptures, to be teachers in the church. But now in a culture we have equal opportunity for women's education and women who've grown up in the church and know the scriptures as well as any man, it just doesn't fit the pattern of, of Paul's likely reasons for that. There's a lot of reasons for thinking that First uh, Timothy 2 is a culturally uh, conditioned teaching. Um, one of them is simply this. If you look at the, that, that teaching actually comes, it's teaching about women, comes as the fourth in of four things that he lists about women. It says they shouldn't have any braided hair. Women, do you have any braided hair? Uh, any, they shouldn't wear any jewelry. They should not wear uh, expensive or uh, like attractive clothes, uh, apparel that draws attention to themselves, no fancy dresses, and they should not teach and have authority over a man. Now, it's interesting that almost everybody recognizes that the braided hair thing, that was culturally conditioned, and the, the, the jewelry thing, that's culturally conditioned, and the costly apparel, attractive clothing thing, that's culturally conditioned, but women teaching and having authority, that's timeless. <laughs> that's a timeless thing right there. I suspect, and I, you know, not to go to motive, but I'm going to go to motive, but uh, some of what sometimes can be going on is, you know, you're in a position of authority, and uh, you've always had it, and you don't want to give it up. Uh, we're the... We're, we, we call the shots around here, and um, that can sometimes factor into how we, we read the Bible. I'm glad that I'm in a place that uh, encourages women to uh, pursue ministries based on their giftedness and their, their calling and, and not anything having to do with gender. Amen. Okay. Vanessa's glad to hear that, too. I'm, I'm thinking, <laughs> so she wants to be a preacher, pastor, Amen. teacher. Amen, Vanessa. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with what you just said. Uh, <laughs> okay, I thought you would be. Okay, your next question. Is it true that the discovery of the Higgs boson particle, which is also known as the God particle, demonstrates that we no longer need to appeal to God in order to explain the universe? See, that, that is, that's, that, that's just silliness. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I got the question because, I mean, the question's not silly because that, in fact, is what you're hearing. Uh, people are saying stuff like this. But here's what happened in a nutshell is, you know, beginning around the 50s, scientists began to say uh, our equations aren't working. Uh, we can't yet account for why there is enough mass in things to hold things together. Uh, we're, we're missing something because um, uh, with our present equations, everything would just dissipate into nothing. It's what is holding things together? We don't know. They began to say, we've got to search for that. And some Christians read that, heard that, and they began to preach. Uh, Hebrews 1 3 says, God holds all things together by his power of his word. And so they began to preach that, you know, even the scientists acknowledge that we need God uh, to explain why there's even matter in the universe. See, that, that's what's sometimes called the God of the gaps theology, where you find a gap in science and try to fit God into it. And it's really a bad strategy because we have a long history of showing that those gaps tend to get closed. And when those gaps get closed, uh, then uh, uh, you've just pushed your reasons for believing in God out of the picture. Uh, it's, it's wrong here to think anyways. But it, what happened is then, when, this, uh, when they began to search in a more specific way for this particle, some began to refer to it as the God particle. Because if we explain that, well, now we don't need God to hold everything together. Uh, it's bad theology, though, because uh, God holds everything together, and guess what? He maybe uses the Higgs-Boson particle to do it. Uh, you know, if, if, thank God for the discovery of the Higgs-Boson particle, but uh, where did that come from? I mean, God holds the whole thing up, and we don't need little gaps in science to, to be trying to justify uh, believing the gospel, believing in the creator. Amen to all that. But on this particular point, um, the whole reason the, the, the Higgs-Boson particle was even referred to as the God particle was, was from a, a book by a physicist written in 1993 that was titled The God Particle, and that was on, on this phenomenon of the Higgs-Boson. Um, but that, that was a decision of his publisher. Uh, that wasn't his title. Uh, that was a publisher's way to catch people's attention. It did. And Peter Higgs himself, who, who came up with this theory in, in 64, has said, I, I don't like that name. He, he said, first of all, he's an atheist, so he doesn't believe we should be talking about God with this theory at all. But secondly, he said, I, and I also don't think we should call it the God particle because that would offend religious people, and we're not even talking about religion or any about this stuff. So the idea with, that, that because now, because on July 4th, uh, just a, few, a month and a half ago, Two teams of scientists at the largest particle accelerator in the world, in Geneva, believed they found that this Higgs boson particle was, that was predicted, you know, years ago. So that's what the, why this is kind of in the news right now. But none of it has anything to do about whether there's a God or not for explaining the universe. Um, in fact, to be honest, all the people who hold the Higgs, the Higgs theory, Higgs field, and all of that stuff, are, as far as I know, all uh, very much supportive of the standard Big Bang theory. Of, of how the universe came to be. And a number of those people, people like Alan Sandich and um, uh, a number of, of physicists, have said that there's a problem for just uh, atheistic scientists who want to propose that we can explain the universe out of nothing because if Big Bang theory is true, that means roughly 13.75 billion years ago, there was nothing. When we say nothing, we don't mean a bunch of empty space and nothing in it, we mean nothing, meaning no space, no time, no matter. That's what the theory says. 
And so someone like Alan Sandage has actually come to believe in some kind of God just because, coming out of an atheism, saying there had to be something beyond the universe that created it. So I think to this day, you can actually have a strong connection between theology and science where they can work together uh, and actually affirm each other rather than being enemies in some kind of war with each other. Amen. If you want a a really good website on that, go to the BioLogos website. biologos.com or something like that. But BioLogos is this organization that's all about taking the Christian faith and science and showing how they're compatible. It's a real cool organization. Great. This is a question for Paul. Paul, you said before that you and Greg differ on the whole issue of open theism. So where is it that you fall on that issue? Uh, yeah, so we, we do have a couple things we disagree on. And um, I want to be really clear before I answer this question that I go on record is fully affirming Greg's right to be wrong, right? I just <laughs> absolutely defend Ba-boom that. Ba-boom-ching! <laughs> uh, I think that we started arguing about this 17, 18 years ago um, when he had, he had come off up and developed this idea of open theism and a couple of our friends, uh, John Sanders and Clark Pinnock, had gone in that direction as well. And I just, for the life of me, have never found... Um, a reason to, to go in that direction. What we're talking about is a very complex question about how God and time and God's knowledge are related, as well as human freedom. And there's been a wide range of views on this through church history. Where Greg and I absolutely agree is that we agree whatever the answer to how God's foreknowledge works, it has to be compatible with the idea of human freedom. Because if you lose freedom... We believe you lose love. And so that, that's, that we, we, we're, we're lockstep on that. But then you, once you grant that, you, you still have to say, well, okay, but how does God's foreknowledge of the future work if we're free? Uh, Greg's view believes that if we're free, then that would mean God wouldn't know any particular definite decision that we're going to make in the future unless either God has ordained that we're going to make that, which Greg doesn't want to say very often, or unless God kind of knows statistically how we usually operate and sort of banks on that. Um, I just find, for example, some passages in Scripture that seem to be much more particular on God's knowledge of things like that. For example, I think uh, when, G- when Jesus predicts that Peter's going to deny Jesus three times in the next couple of hours, and within those hours, on one hand, Peter's cutting off some guy's ear to defend Jesus, and then the next hour, denying he even knows the guy, that, to me, seems like a volatile character. Uh, you're never quite sure what he's going to do. And so I think that that shows a particular level of, of foreknowledge more than what Greg's view would, uh, I think, comfortably handle. Um, so that's one of the reasons. Um, there's a few other passages in Scripture, I think, that, that would be more easily explained on my view than not. My view, basically, in a nutshell, is that God, because he creates time and space, is, in a sense, above time and space and can see all of time from sort of what I would call a thick present moment. Uh, he sees all things and experiences all things at once. Uh, from our perspective, time is, from God's perspective, sort of like a second of experience. Um, and that's been a long-standing tradition. Uh, if you're interested in this, actually we have a book that we've done together called Four Views of uh, Divine Foreknowledge. My view's in there called Simple Foreknowledge. Greg's view's in there called Openness. And two other views as well. And the explanation for the verse he brought up is in the book as well, so you can check that out. 
<laughs> and the why easy it's explanation. Wrong. Let's not go into this. <laughs> okay. We spend a lot of time on the love of God. Why don't we hear more about his wrath? Yeah, Greg. We need more wrath. Um, we can get a sermon on wrath coming up. Well, look at it. Yeah. Yeah, I should just have one just on the wrath. Um, I, I, I believe in the wrath of God. Uh, absolutely. Um, I, if this is just a request to hear more about it, uh, I'll take that under counsel. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's, the thing, the wrath is, especially if you just focus on the cross, uh, God's wrath is, I, I think, his grieving withdrawal and letting sin run its course. And uh, I have a lot of material in the book that I'm doing that, that shows that. He turns people over. And it's just his way of, i got to let you go. You're not going to repent, and you're not going to turn. And he comes to a point where he sees that there's nothing more he can do to draw, and so he lets them go. Even with the flood story that we talked about earlier, it says, it says to Noah, my, my spirit will not strive with humans forever. He's striving, trying to bring them on board, trying, trying, trying. There comes a point when he has to let them go. Um, and I, I, I think I say that all the time. Now, what I don't ever want to do is to try to scare people into the kingdom by holding that up as the primary uh, you know, model of God. Uh, there, there is consequences for people who obstinately refuse to uh, get aligned with the kingdom. But my, my experience here in this culture right now, anyways, is that most of the time people are resisting going down uh, the kingdom path is because the, the, picture of, the picture of God they're resisting is one that I would resist. I mean, people have been given, the gospel has been made so ugly uh, that, that a lot of people say, I, I don't want that. That is, you know, it doesn't ring true with them, and uh, they push that away. And then we try to, some try to you know, scare them into the kingdom, which I don't think works. But where you're like saying, well, then they're not God that you're already pushing away. Well, he's going to come and step on you. Um, I, I, I think that in this culture, in this time, I think people need to know that there is a real consequence. That's real. That's real, for sure. Uh, but um, I, I think God wants to draw them with the cross. Jesus said in John, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto me. It's the attractiveness of the love that draws. If people have an open heart to it, it draws. And so I'm always trying to collapse the negative, uh, the, the, what I think are false pictures of God, to, to show the God who looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross to allow the beauty of that to draw people into the kingdom. Um, and uh, I suspect it's just because folks are so conditioned to hearing in conservative Christian circles the, the scary approach used that mine, by contrast, seems like I don't do it enough. Um, but um, be that as it may, I, I, I want to be, first and foremost, without at all denying the negative terrible consequences for going our own way, being a lord of our own life. I want to be about holding up uh, the banner of this God who gave his life for you. And that's what his real character is like. And uh, drawing people by the power of that. Okay, well, I want to thank everyone for all the questions. There have been so many good ones, um, but we only have about five minutes left. And so I'm thinking at the rate we're going, we probably can't do more than one more. But I want to encourage everyone to make sure that you download the other sermons from our 9 o'clock service and our 11 o'clock service tomorrow because we're not going to repeat any of the questions. So if your question didn't get answered tonight, it might be answered on Sunday. With that being said, here's our last question. 
Why are Christians so quick to give credit to God for answering prayers, but never blame him for the bad things that happen? You wrote a book on that, didn't you? You want to take it? Well, because God is good. <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, God is good, and so I, I and every good gift comes from the Father above. So um, I, I think you know the the biblical picture of, of, that we get in the New Testament is that we are in a world that is seized by forces of evil. There's 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 always a downward pull, destructive pull on everything, um, and so when sun breaks through, uh, you know that that's the result of God. God's goodness pushing through. And so I think there's an appropriate place to give God thanks for every good thing because it ultimately comes from him. But precisely because God is good and people often aren't and demonic forces certainly aren't, uh, it's appropriate to put the blame on them when things go bad. Um, If you have an an omni-controlling God, well, then you should blame God for the evil and as well as thank him for the good. But I don't hold that view. I think God is always on the side of good, pushing towards the good, working towards the good, getting everyone on board with the good as much as possible. But there's other forces, other people, other demonic agents who are pulling in the other direction, and uh, thus making it um, uh, all evils to be attributed to them, ultimately. I think the only thing to add to that, though, is that we've got to be careful, because in our culture, how one defines good and bad is, is yes. all important here. Yeah, yep. In our culture, often what is good is what I like. And what is bad is anything that doesn't work for me or that I don't find fun or pleasurable. Now, by that definition, uh, God does do some things I'm not going to like because out of his love for me, he's not going to let me go in the way that I would naturally want to go, which is filling my life with hedonistic pleasures and making all of life about me. That he's going to try to stop me from doing because that's killing me. That, that's sin and that's destructive. And so to say that God is all good doesn't mean he doesn't in our lives, you know, also work to, to bring discipline and to bring correction and, mm-hmm. and all of that, which isn't fun, but it's necessary and it's loving. Just like, you know, I think so many of these questions, as Greg has mentioned frequently, when you take them out of the realm of sort of the, the law court and put them in the realm of loving relationship, everything changes. Um, if my son comes to me and says, Dad, why did you do this that, that I didn't like? Well, I better be able to answer to him that whatever I did that he didn't like and was painful for him was nonetheless out of a heart of love as opposed to out of a heart of self-centeredness on my part or what have you. And that is, of course, my, my goal as a parent is that whatever I do for my, my children is out of love, uh, even if they don't like it. And I think because God is all good, we know that whatever he does is out of love for the good, even those times when it's it's a discipline or, or a uh, correction thing that's not fun. Uh, we got one more minute. Yeah, uh, we do. Want, you want to try it? Yeah. I mean, I'm let's see really if we can answer a question in one minute. 30 <laughs> seconds. Let's see. I'm, I'm really impressed. See, I don't have divine foreknowledge, clearly. Otherwise, <laughs> I would have known. Clearly. All right. Here's your, here's your real last question. How do so many people in the world who seem to be honestly seeking the truth end up involved in so many different religions? Oh, that's a 30-second question. <laughs> Go ahead. Because there's lots of religions to be involved in. No. <laughs> that's tricky. Can you elaborate in 10 seconds? <laughs> I mean, you, know, you can sort of answer that at an empirical level. You know, there just is, throughout human history, multiple cultures and multiple ways that humans have tried to find God. 
and have taken what I believe, what we believe, is the impulse in all human beings to know God. Paul says that every human being has both a moral conscience sort of written on their heart from God and a sense of the the grandeur and splendor of the world that, that makes people go, there's something out there, right? But the way we conceive of who this God is it can be multiple ways, and when you add into that the context of spiritual warfare, that we have spiritual enemies trying to distract us from the true God, and actually to take worship away from the true God and take it for themselves, which of course Satan and, and the demonic uh, presences are trying to do, then you can understand why there's so many distorted ways of conceiving of who God is. Uh, and that is why I think God at one point didn't leave it up to this cultures and religions, but became human and stepped into human history himself and, and gave the definitive revelation of who he is in Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. I think that sorts out uh, any, any other religious moment from the definitive moment when God became humanity. And where there's any other service, I say, have a good night. But since it's Saturday night, we're never that anal about time, so I'll add one thing. Uh, you know, part of what, you know, uh, maybe when people ask that question, sometimes there's a sort of angst they have nervousness because they work on the assumption that all people who don't know Christ mm. are lost. Mm. And they often think in terms of religions. There's the right religion and the wrong religions. Christianity is the right religion, and uh, those other ones are wrong, and God has given up on them. And about that, I just say two things. One is that uh, I, it's not helpful to divide the world up according to religions. Religion, there isn't a true religion. Uh, the Christian religion is not the true religion. The Christian religion is something that religious people made with the kingdom. Uh, and it's got some good things in it, but it's got a lot of demonic things in it. You look at church history, that religion, I, I wouldn't identify with that. Um, and and uh, so I don't, don't, don't think of it in terms of all or nothing thing. Uh, I've got, I think I know some, some true things based on Jesus and New Testament revelation. But that doesn't mean I belong to a right religion or that I got all truth or that other groups have no truth. Which is my second point. And Paul referred to it. Uh, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, says God is always at work drawing people, uh, luring them, um, uh, getting people to grope for him and possibly find him. I love that passage because it assures me that God is, he hasn't given up on people. He's always out there. He's got to work through it in a fallen world with a lot of cultural stuff and a lot of baggage and, and there's a lot of restrictions there. But insofar as it's possible, he's working in the hearts of people to draw them towards him and to whatever degree is possible to actually find him. And, and I, I think everybody who's salvageable will be saved. God's not going to let someone be lost on the basis of a contingency of where they were born and, and, and how they happen to be raised. And here again, I would say the criteria is, is the cross. As I look, I know who God is based on Jesus Christ uh, crucified. Um, and so as I look at the world, wherever I see things that, are, that point towards a cross-like view of God, to that degree, I'm going to give God the credit. I think that's God drawing people. Uh, to whatever degree you find other stuff, ugly stuff, demonic stuff, that I'll attribute to the fallen flesh and to demonic forces that, that, that blind us. But it's not an all or nothing thing. Uh, God is in love with everybody, and he's, in my view, drawing everybody. And if Paul disagrees with that, well, then he's just wrong. <laughs> all right, hey, I, I, I appreciate having an environment where we can do this kind of stuff. I, I think it's just so good to just... I have stuff out in the air and uh, be be, uh, probing them and, and seeking and asking and all of that.